We are continuing our sermon series, following in the steps of Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, this map shows that journey. And two weeks ago, we talked about his time in Philippi. Last week, we talked about his time in Thessalonica and Berea. And we said that a mob came from Thessalonica and basically drove him out of Berea. And he travels 250 miles down to Athens, uh, which is what we will be focusing on today, his ministry in Athens. I was most excited about going to Athens. Uh, I was a philosophy major when, during my undergraduate work, and so seeing the place where classical philosophy began with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Also, this was the birthplace of democracy, and uh, this picture here, this next picture, uh, this, this hill behind where we're standing is believed to be the place where the first democratic vote took place, the first time someone chose for someone to to vote, to, to represent them. So representative democracy, uh, this is the history. This is where it began. And of course, uh, there's biblical history that happened in Athens, which is what we will be focusing on this morning. Paul's time in Athens is brief, but Luke gives a pretty good amount of attention to it. He gives us Paul's message that he preached there, and I think he does that for a reason. He's showing us this is what Paul's preaching involved. This is what it looked like. This is what it sounded like. And it wasn't just preaching to Gentiles. It wasn't just preaching to Greeks. Uh, when Paul's going to Athens, he's going to the intellectual and cultural center of the world at that time. Uh, I heard one person say it's sort of like Harvard and Yale and Oxford all kind of mixed into one. If you had that one place where all of those were incorporated, this was Athens in the ancient world. And Paul is not ashamed to go there. He's not ashamed to preach the gospel there. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And uh, we're going to talk about what we can learn from that this morning. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 16 through 34, and this is the very inspired Word of God. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded this morning the gospel is good news for all. It is good news for places, intellectual places like Athens. It is good news for places that are a little bit off the beaten path like Berea. It is good news for immoral places like Corinth. And uh, Father, everyone needs the gospel, including us. Uh, Help us understand this and grasp this so that we too are not ashamed of the gospel. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been talking about how Christianity spread. It didn't stay in Israel. It didn't stay in Jerusalem. It spread, and it was meant to. That's the goal. That's the nature of it. It it spreads. It's supposed to. Uh, We sing a song as kids. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. We're not supposed to hide it under a bushel. We're not supposed to keep it in one place. We're supposed to see it spread and shine. And we've been talking about lessons that we learn during Paul's missionary journey for spreading this faith. And today we're going to look at several more lessons and learn several more lessons from his time in Athens. So here's the first lesson that we learn. Christianity advances when we develop a burden for people. Look at verse 16 with me. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He arrives in Athens and the first thing he notices is idols or temples, pagan temples. It would be hard to miss them. Uh, You see one here in our picture. This is the Acropolis and the Parthenon is the large temple on top and it's designed, it's, it's, it's intended for everyone to be able to see it pretty much no matter where you are in the city. In fact, they have building codes that exist to this day where they don't allow buildings to be built too high because they want everyone to see it. You just can't help but see it. And uh, this is a closer up picture of the Parthenon up on top of the Acropolis. This is another temple that was located, that is located next to the Parthenon uh, called the Erechtheion. And then another temple as you enter up onto the top of the Acropolis right up here, Athena, Nike. And so temples everywhere. And it's not just up on the Acropolis. There's another temple that's located just kind of down in the marketplace, a temple to Hephaestus. And so Paul is just walking around and seeing temples, which are everywhere, especially in Athens. And it says he's, he's provoked. His spirit is provoked. The NIV says greatly distressed. Why? Why is he greatly distressed at these buildings that everyone is amazed by? And the answer is because Paul sees this as a sign of lostness. These people don't know the one true and living God. God is not known here. God's glory is not made known here. These people are lost. They're clueless. They're worshiping uh, man-made gods. And, and Paul is burdened for them. His spirit is provoked. He's burdened by the lostness. And I just want to point out, if you and I are going to have an impact, 
in Colorado Springs, in our neighborhoods, if we are going to have an impact, it will require that we have a burden, a burden for lost people. And I just want to point out, there's a huge difference between being burdened for lost people because of their lostness and being angry at people because they're so different from us and, and think of the world and view the world so differently than we do and have different values than us. There's a big difference. And I think it's important for us to discern within ourselves which of these two characterizes us the best. And do I look around and see lostness and am I burdened by the lostness and the fact that people are lost and in darkness? Or do I look around and see lostness and get angry because they're so different from me and don't have the right values like I do? And by the way, people know. Like lost people can tell if you are burdened for them and have a deep concern for them and care for them, or if you just can't stand them because they're just so different from you. Right? People know. They intuitively know this. I was trying to think of reasons why we might not be burdened for lost people. I came up with several. Maybe you can think of some more. Uh, first of all, I think sometimes we're not burdened by lostness because we're just kind of immune to it. You know, we don't have pagan temples all over the place, and I'm glad we don't. Uh, but we have signs and evidence of lostness all around us, just as prevalent as the pagan temples in Athens. And I think sometimes we just kind of become immune to it. We just kind of become numb to it. We're just, it's just so, we're just so used to it. We see it everywhere. We're exposed to it constantly, and we just become numb to the fact that there's darkness and lostness all around us. Secondly, I think we're not burdened by lostness because we've kind of forgotten what the consequences are of being lost. Right? The Bible teaches that lost people go to hell and that hell is real and it's an eternity under God's wrath. And I, I think sometimes we just kind of re redefine this or we, we ignore this or we forget this. We believe that the Bible teaches there are many people who are dying and going to hell. And I think sometimes we just kind of forget that or ignore that. And therefore, we're not burdened by lostness because we forget what the consequences are that come with being lost. Third, I think sometimes we're not burdened by lostness because we just don't care about people. We just don't care. We're like, you got a choice. You make the choice. You brought this on yourself. I made the right choice. You didn't. So I don't care. And I think sometimes we're just apathetic toward people. We just don't care. You're lost. You're going to hell. I just don't care. Your choice. Right? And I just want to point out that that's just not an option for us. We have to be people who are burdened. Burdened, first of all, for the glory of God. God wants to be known. God wants to be worshipped as the one true and living God. So we have to have a burden for the glory of God to be where it's not, to be made known where it's not. And we don't have an option but to be burdened for people, to care about people, to care about their lostness, to love people. So let me pause and ask you this question. Do you feel, do you sense, do you have a burden for lostness, a burden for lost people? And if not, why not? What's preventing you? Have you become numb? Or have you kind of redefined the consequences? Have you forgotten the consequences of what it means to be lost? That it means hell? Or perhaps you've gotten just apathetic. You just don't care about people. Well, the next lesson we're going to learn is actually one of the solutions for if you don't care about people. If you don't care about people, uh, the, the, the solution is to invest time with people. And this is also the second key for making God known. So secondly, Christianity advances 
when we invest time with people. So here's my point. If you don't care about people, one of the solutions is start investing time in people and your heart will follow. You'll start to care about people if you actually get to know them and invest time with them. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So we know this is Paul's normal custom. He goes to the synagogue first. He goes to the Jews first, and then he goes to the Gentiles. And notice it says he goes to the, to the marketplace, the Agora, the ancient Agora, every day. Every day he goes to the Agora. This is actually a picture taken from the Agora. So I'm in the Agora here, the ancient Agora, taking a picture up of the Acropolis. And this is another uh, picture taken of the Agora. You get a good feel. This is where everybody spent their time. This is where the public uh, spoke to each other, uh, sold, um, purchased. This is where life happened. Life doesn't happen up here. This, there's a parade periodically that goes up here. This is just something you see. This is where the people are. This is where life happens. And therefore, that's where Paul goes. Every day in the marketplace, the ancient Agora, what's he doing? He's, he's investing time in people. He's spending time with people. There's a, a theory in psychology called the bystander effect. And basically it says something like this. If there's an accident and someone's injured, the more people who witness it, the less likely it is that someone will help or do something about it or call it in. If you have a small group of people who witness it, the more likely someone will do something. Now why is that? If you have a ton of people who see it, surely one of them will do something. Why, didn't, why, is it, why are people less likely to do something if there's a bunch of people there? And the answer is, of course, because you just assume surely someone else will do this. There's all these people. I don't have time for this, but surely someone else will. So I can feel good about myself and not do anything because I'm confident someone will call this in. Someone will solve it. But if I'm the only person there and I witness it, I know intuitively if I don't do anything, no one will. And I think, here's my point, I think the reason why Christianity doesn't advance among us the way it should and the way it's supposed to is because of the bystander effect. I think we all assume somebody else will do that. Right? Somebody else who's more gifted at that. Somebody else who's better at that. Somebody else like an Apostle Paul type who enjoys doing this kind of thing. You know, he enjoys going into the heart of Athens and stirring it up in the marketplace. That's just not me. That's not my gifting. I'll do other things, but I'm not going to do that. And so what happens? None of us do it. None of us are advancing. None of us are spending time with people with the purpose of sharing the gospel because we're all assuming somebody else will do it. And I'm making the argument here, we can't do that. We can't make that assumption. It is a responsibility for every single one of us. We used to place a lot of emphasis on what we called biblical hospitality. Right where you are, right where God has you, opening up your home, practicing biblical hospitality. And that's hard to do during a pandemic, by the way. It's hard to know what to do. What are the limitations? What are people comfortable with? But I think now is the time to, to refocus our energy on biblical hospitality. And, and by the way, I'm not asking you to do something you're not already doing. I'm just saying, what are you already doing? Where are you already going? Where are the people you're already hanging around? What's your agora? Where is your agora? For some of you, it may actually be Walmart. It may be the actual marketplace. For some of you, it may be the park. For some of you, it may be work. It may be school. Where are you already? 
I'm not asking you to add something to do to your to-do list, which is already really long, I'm sure. I'm saying, where are you already going? What's your agora? While you're there doing what you do, make sure that you're aware of the people around you and that you're investing time into the people around you, having conversations, getting to know them, investing in the people who are there. This is how the gospel advances. It advances when God's people become aware, burdened for the lost people around them, and then actually invest time in the lost people around them. Third, Christianity advances when we build bridges to people. While Paul is spending time among people in the marketplace, he's not just there to buy fruit. He's there stirring it up. He's talking to people. Verse 18 tells us he engages in conversation with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans would kind of be our modern-day naturalists who believe all that exists is nature. This is all we can really know. What you see, touch, taste. That's all that's real. That's what's real. Those are the Epicureans. Those are our modern-day naturalists. Darwinian naturalists, right? The, the Stoics would kind of be more of our modern-day rationalists. They would kind of take the opposite approach. What's real is not the stuff we see. What's real is the, the, the spiritual, the, the rational, the logos that's kind of behind all things, that's driving all things. And both of these worldviews uh, would not embrace uh, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so Paul is there presenting the fundamentals of the Christian faith. In verse 18, they call him a babbler. This guy's a babbler, just talking, right? Verse 18, they say, you're bringing us some foreign deities. You know, in their minds, they, they, they have all these gods, so many gods they can't even hardly list them all. And they think Paul is a foreigner bringing foreign deities. So maybe we just kind of add his deities to our current list. He's talking about this guy, Jesus. Sure, add Jesus to the list with all the other gods we have. He keeps talking about this resurrection, Anastasia in the Greek. Maybe that's another god. He's talking. He keeps using this word, Anastasia. Maybe that's one of the gods. Add it to the list, right? Verse 21, they loved hearing new ideas. They loved hearing about Jesus. They loved hearing about the resurrection. Sure, we want to hear about your gods. We want to hear about your, your view of the world. Come talk to us. We're interested. Verse 20, they say, you are bringing some strange things to our ears. I love this verse. You are bringing strange things to our ears. I think if you and I would be faithful to open our mouths and share the gospel explicitly with people today in our post-Christian world, they would say something similar to us. That's weird. You are bringing some strange things to our ears right now. Verse 19, they, they bring him to the Areopagus. Here's a picture of the Areopagus. It's kind of this rock area. It's located above the Agora, so the Agora is down below. The Acropolis is up above, so it's kind of in between. Uh, named after the Greek god Ares. The Roman equivalent of Ares is Mars. And so that's why you sometimes hear this referred to as Mars Hill. I think the King James actually refers to it as Mars Hill, referring to the same thing. Uh, here we are at the Areopagus. Really nice, there weren't many people around. And we were able to sit in the Areopagus and read Paul's sermon. And that's what they did. They brought Paul there. This is the place where they would sort of hear cases. They would try cases at some point in, in, in history. Uh, you know, hear new ideas. And so they bring Paul. You're bringing some new things to our ears, strange things to our ears. Come and present your message to us. 
And so Paul begins verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So notice Paul begins his message by saying, You guys are very religious. And they probably would have said, Thank you. You know, we like to think of ourselves as very religious. Uh, we've got these temples. And, uh, you know, what's Paul doing? He's, he's, he's establishing, he's kind of building a bridge to them. You know, he's kind of using their language. He doesn't just come in guns blazing. He will here in a second. Uh, but he, he establishes a little commonality, talking their language. You guys are very religious, finding some common ground. And notice, he doesn't quote the Old Testament. He's, of course, preaching Old Testament ideas and concepts, certainly, and truths. But he doesn't appeal to the Old Testament like he does when he has a Jewish audience. When he has a Jewish audience, they look at the Old Testament as authority. So you appeal to the Old Testament and you convince people. So who does he appeal to when he's preaching to the Greeks? He appeals to their own poets. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. He doesn't regard their poets with authority, divine authority, but where he can find some middle ground and some common ground, he finds it. And he speaks their language. He's becoming all things to all men. And he says, guys... As I was walking around in your marketplace and around your city, I found an altar that said, To the unknown God. They were so religious and had so many gods that they actually had an altar to the unknown God. And just in case there was one they didn't know about or they had left out, just so they don't offend anybody, let's cover all our bases. Let's have an altar to the unknown God. And Paul basically says, By your own admission, there's a God that you don't know about. Right? You're saying to the unknown God, so there's some God you don't know about by your own admission, and I am here to tell you about the God you don't know. And he proceeds to preach the gospel. But he bridges the, he bridges the worlds together. He finds a bridge to go find common ground, to use their language so that he can bring the gospel to them. I was trying to think of an example of how we might build bridges to people. One example that came to my mind, we had a neighbor who came and knocked on our door this past week and brought us a box of Christmas cookies. And I actually felt guilty because I thought we ought to be the ones going around handing out Christmas cookies to our neighbors. Right? But my point is this. You want to build a bridge to somebody? You can do it around food. People love food. You share a meal with someone. I heard an amen. Or you share a meal with someone. Right? You invite someone for a meal. People like food. People like good treats, good candy. So by all means, use food as a bridge. But of course, Paul here isn't using food as a bridge. He's using ideas, values, thinking as a bridge. So what are some ideas that we can find bridges and common ground with people? Here's one example. This time of year, everybody seems to be celebrating this holiday. People are putting lights on their house. I mean, Christians, non-Christians, people putting lights on their house, decorations, parties, dressing up, Christmas songs, Christmas music, which, by the way, a lot of the Christmas music is really good quality, you know, in, in stores, like department stores. You've got, if department stores are even still a thing, you know, that's kind of an anachronistic reference there, <laughs> department stores. Um, people are listening to Christmas music, and it's oftentimes really good quality 
solid Christmas music. So, so here's the point. You can find common ground with them. I would encourage you. In fact, I'll challenge you. One person this week, talk to them about Christmas. And say, hey, what do, you, what do you do for Christmas? What are your traditions? What do you and your family do for Christmas? How do you celebrate Christmas? Just see what they say and listen to them. Interact with them. Have a real conversation. And then ask them this question. You know, what is it that you celebrate? Like, what are you celebrating? What is it about Christmas that's, that's celebratory to you? What are you excited about? What are you, what are you rejoicing about? And then listen to them and then say, can I share with you how me and my family celebrate Christmas and some of our traditions and some of what we do? And if you've listened well to them, they'll probably want to listen well to you. And then you can say, can I share with you why we celebrate Christmas? The reason behind it. And then look for an opportunity to tell them about Christ and his birth and, and the whole story of the, the good news of the gospel. Right? So find one person this next week, and if not this next week, sometime this Christmas season, have a conversation, preferably with maybe somebody you haven't already had a conversation with about these things, and ask them, you know, what, how do you celebrate Christmas and why do you celebrate Christmas? And can I share with you why we celebrate Christmas? Find common ground, build a bridge to someone in order to try to see the gospel advance. And this brings us to the fourth lesson we learn here. Christianity advances when we faithfully share the message. I want to be really clear. It's hypothetically possible to have a burden for people. It's hypothetically possible to invest time with people. It's hypothetically possible to build bridges to people and never actually share the gospel. And I want to be really clear. Until we've shared the gospel, Christianity will not advance. There has to be an opening of the mouth, speaking of the message for people to hear in order for us to say we have advanced the gospel. We've seen God use this and take this and advance it. And that's why Luke gives the focus and the emphasis and the attention to the message. The account in Acts is, is focused on Paul's message, the content of the message that he preaches in Athens. I want you to notice three themes of his message First of all, there's God the Creator. Look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The Athenians believed in many gods. And Paul says, I'm here to tell you about the God who is before everything. I'm here to tell you there's one God. He's the creator God and everything that exists is dependent on him and he is in need of nothing. He doesn't need temples. He doesn't need our stuff. You can't confine him to an image. He is behind it all, before it all, all powerful, one creator God. And I just want to be really clear. The gospel message requires that we emphasize God the creator. You can't skip it. You can't assume it. Paul doesn't assume the Athenians believe in one creator God and just move on to Jesus. Paul is not okay with them sort of adding Jesus to their pre-existing worldview. As long as you add Jesus, you're okay. No. They have to, he has to completely deconstruct their worldview. There's one God. Not many gods. One God. One creator God behind it all. And until you get that, you're not going to get Jesus. He's not okay with them adding Jesus and resurrection to their pre-existing beliefs. So if we're going to be faithful to share the gospel, 
in a post-Christian world that we live in, where you cannot assume people believe in one creator God, we have to talk about God the creator in order to be faithful. And unfortunately, there are a lot of evangelistic approaches that just sort of skip over God the creator. They just sort of assume it. And it's largely because they were written in time periods when you could maybe assume that most Americans believed in one creator God. You can't assume that anymore. People are all over the map in terms of their views and their religious beliefs. We are living consistently in a post-Christian era. And so we have to start with the very foundation, which is there's a God who created everything. And until a person gets that, they'll never get the gospel. God the creator is crucial to the gospel message. Second, God the sustainer. In verses 26 through 28, Paul talks about how God is sustaining all things. He's working in all things. He's in all things. He created people as religious people. In other words, He created people in His image and we are created to worship something. So Paul's basically saying, it doesn't surprise me that you guys are such worshipers and have temples everywhere. You're created to worship. You're going to worship something, but I'm here to tell you about the one you need to start worshiping because He's the, the one you're created to worship. We, all people are worshiping people. The question is, are they worshiping the one true and living God? And Paul is here to tell them about the one true and living God so that they will order their worship properly and correctly on the one to whom they ultimately are created for and longing for and can't be satisfied until they know Him. See, there's both themes. Both are crucial to the Christian message. God the Creator who's behind it all, who's transcendent, and God the Sustainer who is acting within and who is within, and who is imminent, and who is near. And it's, when you're talking to someone, it's very helpful to try to figure out which of these extremes they tend to go to. Because most people who are not Christians, they still believe in some God. And you've got to figure out what their worldview is. And they tend to gravitate toward one of these two extremes. You're either probably talking to a person who believes there's a Creator God, who kind of created it all and wound it all up and then just let it go and doesn't act within it. That's deism. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is a, probably one of our most famous deists. Right? He believes in a God who created it all, but then steps away from it and doesn't act within it. And then the other extreme is you have people who think God's everywhere. He's in everything. He's behind everything. Everything is spiritual. Everything is religious. God is everywhere. It's kind of more the pantheistic, the, spirit, the spiritualist view. Right? And you've got to identify that. Say, who am I talking to here? And then you can find some common ground with them. If they say God's everywhere, I also believe He's everywhere. I find common ground with you there. But I also believe He's the creator behind it all. Right? And so we've got to talk about that. But if I'm talking to the person who thinks God just sort of wound it all up and stepped away, I can find common ground with Him. I also believe God's creator, all-powerful, right? transcendent. But the Bible also talks about how God does act within, and He is present everywhere. And He is orchestrating all things and bringing all things to an end. And He's very much everywhere. It's both and. God is the creator and God's the sustainer. But third theme that Paul mentions here, God the judge. Look at verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, guys, you've never heard about the one true God, but I'm here telling you about him now. 
And therefore, you can't claim ignorance anymore. You can't point to the altar to the unknown God and say you got your bases covered because I've just come and told you about the God you don't know. And it's a message, Paul says, that demands a response. You can't just hear my message and say, oh, that's really fascinating. That's interesting. We'll add that to our other list of things to think about and kick around and ponder and pontificate about. No. This is a message that demands a response because I'm saying this God is one day soon going to break into history again like He did in the person of Jesus and He's going to judge you. You're going to be judged by Him. And the proof that He's going to do this is the fact that He raised Him from the grave in the first place. Paul says, I'm here as a witness, an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ telling you Jesus rose from the grave and therefore I'm confident He will do what He said. He'll return again, but when He returns... He'll return in judgment, so you have to respond. Respond today. Now, some people will say, well, where's the cross here? Where's the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus? Why didn't he ever talk about that? And I think there's a couple of responses to that question. It's a good question, by the way. Uh, Number one, uh, I think it's implied. The death of Jesus is implied. If you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you can't have a resurrection from the dead without death. So so I believe it's very much implied, the death of Jesus. But secondly, I think we get the sense that they sort of cut him off. Like, we're done here. People are willing to talk about God the Creator all day long. They'll talk with you about God the Creator until you're blue in the face. And people will talk about God the Sustainer who acts within. That's fine. That's interesting. They'll talk about that. You start talking about God the Judge who's going to return one day to judge you and you're going to have to give an account and you are accountable and you've got to do something now. You have to actually repent now and change your life now and make changes that are costly. And it's not just a message that you can take home and find interesting or curious or intellectually appealing. No, it's a message that has to change your life. You have to respond by changing your life and centering your life around this person. People get uncomfortable. People start, you know, we're about done here, right? You're stepping on my toes now. You just went from being intellectually curious to you're telling me I'm going to have to stand before a judge and be judged and be found guilty unless I respond now in a way that's costly? Right? I think we're done here. And I think that's the sense we get. They're done. Because the, the message demands a response. And you and I haven't shared the gospel with a person until we've called them to respond. You have to respond to this. You have to trust in this. You have to believe in this. You have to repent and turn from your false idols and trust in Christ. You have to do it. You haven't preached the gospel. You haven't shared the gospel until you've called someone to decision. And they're going to respond in one of three ways, just like the people in Paul's day in Athens responded in one of three ways. Verse 32, some people mocked him and rejected him. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a babbler. This is strange. We don't, we're, not, we're not going to accept this. Verse 32, some people said, we'll hear you again. I've heard you. It's interesting. I'm not going to cross it off the list. I'm not ready to respond by trusting, but I'll hear you again on this matter, perhaps somewhere down the road. Verse 34, some people responded by repenting and trusting in Christ. And one of them was a member of the Areopagus, the Areopagite, kind of the the council, one of the formal members, Dionysius, became a Christian that day and and I assume became a part of the church in Athens that day. And and if you and I are going to share the message faithfully, you can expect to receive the same three responses. Some people will reject you and mock you. Be ready for it. Some people will say, oh, let's kick this down the road and talk about it another time. Not ready right now. Be ready for it. Some people will hear and believe. And that's how the the message spreads. That's how Christianity spreads. 
This is how the faith advances. The incredible good news about the fact that there is a creator God that has created you, that you owe your existence to, and even though you've sinned against him, and even though he doesn't need you, he came to us in the person of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, We celebrate that this season, but we celebrate it not just because he was born, we celebrate it because of what he grew up to do. He grew up to obey the law perfectly for us in a way that we can't in order to go to the cross to die a death in our place for me, for my sins. And God accepted his sacrifice and the proof is God raised him from the grave and today he's alive and well and one day soon he's going to return and he's going to return to judge the living and the dead and you will stand before him in judgment. And the question is, will you be able to stand under the judgment of the one true and living God? And the answer is the only way you can stand is if you will repent and turn from your sins and turn from worshiping whatever it is false idol, false God, false idea you're going after, and turn to Christ and believe on Him and trust in Him, you can be right with God. If you've never responded with faith, I hope today will be the day that you'll respond by hearing and believing. And if you are trusting in Christ this morning, we invite you to take this meal that we're about to take together. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that Jesus gave to us. By taking the meal, we are saying several things. First of all, we're saying we believe there's a Creator God. So don't take this meal if you can't say, I believe there's a Creator God who created me. By taking this meal, we are saying we believe we've sinned against this Creator God and incurred His wrath against us. By taking this meal, we are saying we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The bread represents His body torn. The cup represents His blood poured out. We're saying we need the body and the death of Jesus for me for my right standing with God. And by taking this meal, we are saying, listen closely, By taking this meal, we are saying, I am committing to advance this message to others. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. We only take this meal today if we're willing to say, I'm trusting in Christ and I'm willing to make this message known. Because that's, that's, that's what it's about. That's why He saved us in the first place. He saved us in order to make Him known. And so if these things are not true for you, you don't believe there's a Creator God. You don't believe you've sinned against Him. You don't believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're not ready to make Him known to others. We would ask you to not take this meal. If you're not in good standing with the New Testament church, we would ask you to not take this meal. And instead, consider, why are you not? And how are you going to stand one day before the judgment? And why are you not trusting in Christ for your provision on that day of judgment? All you have to do is hear and believe. And you can be saved. You can be right with God. So I would ask you to ponder, why not? You're going to respond. Everybody responds. Every single person in this room will respond. The question is, how will you respond? Why not respond in a saving way? So for these reasons, I want to give you a few moments of silence to reflect, pause, confess, repent, examine. If you haven't gotten the elements yet, they are at the back of the room. You can go get them during this time. For the rest of us, we'll bow our head for a few moments of silence, and then I will lead us from there.